We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Hello and welcome back to another Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me and Lean, again from arsenalvision.co.uk. Uh, the voice at the start of this podcast was my three-year-old son, teaching him nice and early the songs, and that's going grand. Uh, apologies for my horrendous sounding voice. I've got some sort of infection-type flu-type stuff. Man flu stuff, you know? So apologies for the sniffles and stuff, but I can't stop saying stuff as well. Yes, so on the podcast today, let me get down to it because I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, Paul, Elliot and Tim will be discussing the uh, victory. We actually won a game for the first time in a while, which is good, against Bournemouth, 2-0 away at um, the Vitality Stadium. I enjoyed parts of it. I enjoyed the first half. I liked the first half of the game, but the second half was a bit... That wasn't so fun. Two goals in about 90 seconds from Mesut Ozil and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Like London buses, eh? Don't score a goal for a while and two come at once. Um, I'm sure that joke has been used somewhere before. It was nice to see some some good finishing from our players after a few games of not doing so. It's really important. And uh, we were quite comfortable. I thought we approached the first half really well. We, um, you know, we, we, we got in their faces, didn't give them much time on the ball. You know, passed the ball quite quickly and sharply. And they made a difference and we found the breakthrough. But in the second half, we backed off quite a lot. And obviously the home side have to go out, have to try and come back into the game. And uh, we dropped off, I think, a bit too much. We gave the initiative to them. We just defended for the half, basically, didn't we? I mean, they didn't create many chances, clear-cut chances, and the ones they did create, we were well saved by Czech, but, you know, we didn't really offer much. It's the first step. I'm hoping it's just it's just a confidence thing, really. 
haven't won for a while, need to win. The boys had to dig in and try and get the victory when they did that, just that. So that's good. Dan Ramsey, I thought, was our, our best player on the day. I thought he was really good. I thought of a lot of comments post-match saying Ramsey wasn't, didn't play well. I didn't quite understand that. I thought he was quite by far best player. Obviously, he contributed with both of the goals. An assist and a, a pre-assist. It wasn't just his contribution to the goals. I just thought he worked really hard, made a lot of tackles. Yeah, he bossed in midfield, I thought. Ozil was, was, um, was good again. So that's good. And yeah, we won. We took the three points. And uh, now Leicester City at home. Massive game. Massive game. Even bigger now that they beat Man City and they're well up for it. So it's going to be very intriguing. But that's all for another day. Uh, we'll be back again soon to discuss that. But in the meantime, I'm going to hand you over to the guys. Let them entertain you. And um, yeah, enjoy the podcast. And back after the weekend. Title within reach. The dream is becoming real. One more big game. One more big hurdle. Can we do it? I think we can. This is the Leicester City Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can follow me on Twitter at Yankee Foxes. No, that's my other podcast. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I am Elliot Smith. We will not be talking about the champions-elect Leicester City. We will be talking about the fourth-paced trophy-elect Arsenal, uh, who won at the weekend. But what does that matter? It's not the wins that matter, it's the pessimism. And here to discuss that are two men who will not be nearly as pessimistic as I am. I apologize in advance for that. The first is Tim Stillman. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Read him on Ars blog and talk to him on this podcast. Hello, sir. Hi, everybody. Again, to the everybody. You can just say, hi, mom. That's okay. It's fine. Hi, listener. I was, I was going for a, a Dr. Nick from the Simpsons. Oh, hey, everybody. Yeah, okay, I got it. I love it. Okay, and here to tell us what the third watching of the game showed him that I didn't see by casually glancing at it on a mobile device, it's Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pausing in My Pants. Hello, Paul. Hello. Okay, good. So I'll start with you, Paul. Flamini and Ramsey again. Why? Why is he doing it to me? Why? Why do you pick them? Well... I think we know why, don't we? I mean, uh, to Just be honest, to make me miserable. Is that, I mean, is that uh, it? Yeah, well, that was primarily his reason. Um, now, I was off the twitters, but for the last few days, just because it's it's not very uplifting on there at the moment. Yeah, it's people like me that. just complaining yeah. constantly. I'm basically avoiding you till the pods, Yankee. It's um, honestly, it's the best policy. I know, yeah. So, I mean, as I understand it, El Nenny's having a baby. So that's a pretty good reason. But I wouldn't have expected to see him start anyway. And Coquelin isn't fully fit per, per Arson. I think the third piece is, goes back to something I said some time ago. And I don't say things often that turn out to continually be kind of true. Which is, I don't think he was ever in any rush to kill off Flamini per se. Um, I, I, I'm sure he's keen to, to get to a newer, better level, but he doesn't see Flamini as, as big an issue as many do, uh, maybe all of us do, and maybe some even more than we do. Um, and to be fair, uh, he got it right for this game. And to be fair, in the last game, although it held us back, it wasn't the reason we didn't win. Uh, Ronald Coleman said it was the best performance paraphrasing slightly but not really nobody had done that to his team in the last 18 months so we mightn't have liked it as a midfield it mightn't have been great it clearly could have been much better but probably in Arsenal's calculation in both games it wouldn't shouldn't have been the reason we couldn't have won 
We won one of them, we drew another, but in the one we drew with 97,000 chances, we just needed to put... In fact, the, the chances we put away in this game were not as good as three or four of the chances we didn't put in against Southampton. So those are the rubs. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's why he went with that midfield. I'm not defending it as the world's best midfield. It's not. It, I think we're all sick of seeing it, but I understand why you picked those players. I guess. I mean, it hasn't worked at all, and we we got away with it against you Bournemouth. Gotta define, but you've got to define at all. It worked against Bournemouth. It didn't work it, against Bournemouth. Not even did. remotely. We played terribly. Did. We won the game 2-0. We didn't play terribly. Idiots. All right, well, we hang did. on. We'll get to that. But Ronald Coleman said it was no, the I, best I said performance against... I said against Bournemouth. I know, but it terribly. worked. And it worked Ronald, against Ronald Coleman Bournemouth. doesn't manage Bournemouth. Against Bournemouth, we went 2-0 up halfway through the first half, and then we sat back and... It yeah. it worked to a level. It's to not a, at yeah. the, okay. it's not at a level that's going to beat top teams. It's not going to beat Barcelona. We're going to run into trouble with it. But I understand why he did it. Certainly against Bournemouth, and to a lesser degree because we kind, it feels like a loss, the Southampton game. But it wasn't the reason we didn't beat Southampton. Yeah. All right. I mean, look, I, I would say that part it was part of the reason we didn't play, beat Southampton because the, its failure to function in the first half meant that we really only had half a game to win the match Agreed. instead of the whole game because I don't think we really turned up in the first half. But let's not backtrack. I, and, and I see your point. I do see it. I will say this, and we'll go over to you, Tim. Uh, Flamini should have been sent off. Not even going to debate it. It's a red card. It should have been a red card. We got lucky. That's fine. He he did make a number of challenges on a yellow card. He had one where he left his feet near the box and thankfully didn't make contact or he might have gone. Um, how about you, Tim? Were you frustrated to see him go with it again? And, and what did you make of, of the way it functioned this time? Any reason to believe that it's it did a better job or did we just kind of get away with it? Um, I think my reading of the selection was that Arteta is just dead um, and he's just not capable. He wasn't even on the bench again. Like I think, you know, he's just not going to play whatsoever, um, probably until the end of his contract. Um, El Nenny, I agree with Paul, probably wouldn't have played anyway, but he had a bit, you know, an excuse. I, I think that basically they made a de- they've made a decision now, probably made at half time in the Southampton game, just to bypass that area altogether anyway. And you look at the rest of the team selection, you know, we've got Gabriel in instead of Per Mertesacker. And the thing that Mertesacker really brings is his ability to pass the ball out of defence very well. But when you've got Flamini and Ramsey, there's just not really much point in having that. And even he replaced Joel Campbell with, you know, um, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. So he took all of, you know, we've, we've got all these injuries to passing players and the ones he's got left, he's left out. Um, and I think that's because he's made the decision just to go quite direct. And we were very direct in this game. We got the ball forward very early. Um, you know, no more so as that apparent than the first goal. Um, and Bournemouth kind of helped that because they play quite a high line. But we were just getting the ball forward very early at every opportunity. Um, and I think we're going to see that for the next few weeks. I think Wenger's just made a decision that we're going to be quite direct. Um, as for... You know, the, the, the Flamini should have been sent off. I actually am going to slightly debate it. I Ugh. do I do think the referee made the right call. And I'll tell you why I think he made the right call. Because I'll caveat this by saying Flamini was extraordinarily stupid um, to, to go into a tackle with two feet. Absolutely needless for a bad run. We're eight minutes into, you know, an away game. If we'd have gone down to ten men, 
you know, what a 32-year-old, probably our most experienced player on the day, is doing, doing that, I've no idea. And I wouldn't have complained wildly had he been sent off and he was inviting it. I do think the referee made the right call because people get kind of wound up about the two-footed thing. And I can see why, because nine times out of ten, a two-footed challenge is a red card. But the rule doesn't say a two-footed tackle is a red card. That is not what the rule says. The rule says um, excessive force or reckless. Now, if you're going in with two feet, then yes, most of the time that's excessive force or reckless. But as far as two-footed tackles go, it was pretty controlled. Um, you know, he was he stayed on the floor. He met the ball very, very early. So I think a yellow card was the right, the right call. However, he was really, really leaving himself open. And I think if perhaps we were already one nil up, he'd have been sent off. I think had the game been a little bit older, um, he might have been sent off because then it, sending someone off after eight minutes is a drastic game-altering decision. And I can see why a referee would shy away from it. Half an hour, 40 minutes mm -hmm. into the game, in the second half, not as much of a consideration. If Arsenal are 1-0 up, he probably pulls the red card out. But he has a sense in the back of his mind, this will completely change the face of the game for the whole game. And, you know, he probably wouldn't do that. So I, I do think it was a yellow card, just. Um, however, like I said, I wouldn't have offered a massive defence of Matthew Flamini had... He'd been sent off, and I think he still deserves every criticism as a 32-year-old going into a tackle like that, um, which is just extraordinary. And, and really not controlling himself super well for the next 15 or 20 minutes after that, no. for what it's worth. Um, all right, look, the one area I'll agree with you on that is I do think he got there very, very early and did take the ball, and I think that that's where he got his leniency. I think if the shoe's on the other foot and we're excusing a referee for not giving a red card early in the match, we'd be furious. We'd say a red card in the first mm -hmm. minute is the same as a red card in the 90th. Um, yeah. I think you can also look at your own player's reaction to something when it happens as a guidepost. And if you look, there's some body language by Arsenal players there like, oh shit. You know, there, yeah. there's a sense that what he just did could be a red card, and I think that's instructive. But I know Paul won't let, let me off this easily. So, okay, Paul, tell me the 37 reasons why it was definitely not even a card at all. Well, um, just to just your point, the guy's foot nearly was on the other foot. No, no, shoe on the other foot. Anyway, um, here's what I want to say about the tackle. Uh, he was really lucky. Uh, and had it gone against him, there's not much you could say about it. To, here's what I found interesting about it. It told me, because if you look at Flamini, he's actually been very a very good boy for about one and a half seasons now. It's been a long time. <laughs> he he has, was itching, though. itching for it. He's, if you look at his cards, he's way below the norm for a guy who plays in that position. He's actually been very unflamony for a long time. We always go back to the typical flamony, but it hasn't been. It's typical, you know, his, his horns came out. This was what he was like when he first came back to us and had a point to prove. So what's that tell me? I think it tells us that after the Southampton game, it wasn't just him. They were all charged up. It, it's maybe a little bit of the price we are willing to pay now that we got away with it for the fact that the team started fast, started hot. We got two goals in the first half, probably because they were all bloody charged up. You know, when that chance came down to Ozil, he didn't 
attempt to pass it into the back of the net, net he fucking smacked it. And that's, uh, you know, that's Flamini's best friend. They were probably sitting beside each other on the bus um, on the way to the game, pretty fucking charged up. And I think the whole team was. I mean, you look at Ramsey's performance. He was everywhere doing everything. So that's not to excuse the tackle, but I do think it might be interesting why that game above all the other games is the game where within eight minutes of the start, Flamini... And, Let's be let's defend Flamini a little bit. It wasn't a two footed tackle, it was about a one point eight five. One of those feet was he, just both like, feet are off the ground though. That's what I thought was really stupid about it. Yeah. No, don't get me wrong. It was completely stupid. It didn't help us in any sense, but I think it was a measure of the charged nature, not that's just fair. That that's not just Flamini charged up. That was eleven players charged up I get to it. make that, things right. That's what happens when Flamini is quote trying extra hard, right? That's his yeah. idea of I'm really into it. I, I get your point. I just thought it was it was not smart. Tim it covered that smart. part, and then I don't think he showed phenomenal restraint in the in the minutes that followed. I, I think he wrote his luck, and and yeah. to Tim's point, you get yourself sent off there. There's just no excuse. It's a home game against Bournemouth on a bad run. This is your chance before you face the league leaders to get yourself back on track. Let's not do it with with 10 men. Um, All right, Tim, I'm going to give you a draft pick. This is a very American concept. Are you familiar with what a draft is? Yes, yes. Okay. I am going to give you three players. You're going to pick one. Paul will pick one, and I will pick one. We're doing this to sort of speed the podcast along because I have a lot of topics I want to get to. So I'm going to give you three players to discuss their contribution to the match. Mm-hmm. Ramsey, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Giroud. Whose contribution performance would you like to discuss? Um, I'll go with Ramsey. All right, fire away. Ramsey, here you go. On the clock. Um, I, thought, I thought Ramsey was superb, actually. I thought this was his best game for a long, long time. I thought, you know, recently it's been obvious when he's been told to sit back and rein it in a bit, and it's been obvious when he's not been told to sit back and rein, or not been told forcefully enough to sit back and rein it in a bit. I thought this was, you know, this was him being nicely measured again between the two responsibilities that he has as a number eight midfielder, and that's getting forward and providing a bit of, you know, attacking oomph. Um, but that's also kind of getting back, doing some work, amending for some of Flamini's flaws. Um, I think also that once Flamini is booked after eight minutes and very and probably fortunate not to be sent off, that gives Ramsey a bit more of an onus um, to come back and do some of the dirty work. I thought he did that superbly. Um, I was looking at his numbers, you know, like 12 ball recoveries, six tackles, one. You know, he did that very, very well. He was picking up the bits and pieces in front of his defence. And you look at the two goals we scored, and he was absolutely pivotal in both of them. And um, the funny thing about the first goal is maybe the three, because I think at the moment the chain, as it were, between Ramsey, Ozil and Giroud, that's what we're trying to centre our play around, and that's why we're going to become a bit more direct, I think. Um, the slightly surprising thing about the first goal is maybe you'd have Ozil playing that ball into Giroud and Ramsey running onto the knockout. Um, but it kind of inverted slightly, which I think was very interesting. Um, and I think Ramsey was a creative force during the game as well. He, he had the measure of that Bournemouth back ball with that lofted ball over the top. And he wasn't perfect. He did take a few too many touches sometimes. And sometimes I wish he'd get a counter-attack going a bit more quickly rather than taking 
five or six touches, but I thought this was much, much better um, from him. This was kind of that all-round performance that I think Aaron Rams is really, really capable of um, if he just stops obsessing about being a goal-scoring midfielder because he's a great tackler. Um, he's not a bad passer. He's got a great engine on him. He can do everything well. Um, and I thought that that's what he did against Bournemouth. I thought he did everything, nothing brilliantly, but everything pretty well. Um, and I, I thought he was probably our best player on the day. So, he, in other words, he kind of aped the Santi Cazorla role better than he has. Yes. If, if yeah. I'm hearing you right. You yeah. Know? Um, and and we've missed that from him. Uh, for all the things he can do well in the attacking third, I agree with you that he was more well-rounded. And if you look at 7 a.m. kickoffs uh, numbers column on Ars blog, um, he, he dove into the Aaron Ramsey performance, and he really put a phenomenal statistical performance in as well as what, what you've just described. Uh, okay, Paul, you have the second draft pick. Oxley chamberlain Chamberlain, please. Uh, you, you realize something. Now I'm fine with that. But you realize you're leaving me an open do, microphone yeah. to talk about Olivier Giroud. Okay. Okay. I, honest, I honestly thought to myself, should I take Giroud? Even just though as I a block. Take, yeah, just for the sake of mankind. Yeah, as a block. Okay, go, yeah. you, you talk about Oxlade-Chamberlain, and I will um, just seethe in preparation. Okay. <laughs> um, so I don't think the Ox was any better or worse than he's been recently. I thought it was a very off performance with the one exception that we've talked about how the boy's well capable of putting in a thunder bastard from outside the box this was a little different was this uh, a shot or a cross oh it was a shot oh come on tim give give him that oh no it's definitely a shot okay just ask come on jesus it was, i agree i Elliot, agree it was a shot i it just doesn't cost no, you anything no, no, Paul. I, I actually, I, I do agree it was a shot. I have seen it said that it may have been a cross. Jesus, so I was asking. Who? You give DM me the names. Anyway, Can do. So, outside of that, I don't think he was very good. I mean, he th- I think he was okay, and then he'd have classic Oxide Chamberlain moments. You know, dodgy passes for no good reason, lack of attention. I'll tell you what I spotted. Around the 54th minute or something, he's tracked back with somebody. He's then worked his way across the box, kind of into the DM spot, and he's covering the guy with the ball. You know, but a bit lethargically, like he doesn't really get that the more pressure you put on the guy, the harder time you get him. But, but okay so far. And the ball works its way out to Nacho Monreal, out to his wing to the Bournemouth winger, who's now got Nacho and Ox in front of him, and a small gap between the two of them, and the guy bangs in a low, kind of medium-strength cross in the gap, and Ox kind of, like it's a practice game, kind of throws his little leg over and uh, around the ball, and then he jogs back towards where... I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) I mean, he tracks back a bit. That was okay. And everything after that feels like his mind's already on the next counterattack or whatever fight. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I mean, people giving players a, a hard time for body language. Uh, you know, I, I don't like that shit because I don't <laughs> think you can work out what's going on in somebody's mind. You know, if you're giving Theo shit for not trying, I'm like, fuck off. Of course he's trying. He just doesn't try like you'd like him. But this, it's just, it's like a fucking, a kid swinging a bit of a leg. Half-hearted would be a compliment. So anyway, um, 
the, my other thought on the Ox is this is the third player in a row in the right on the right wing after Joe Campbell and Theo and now the Ox, where people are saying in the last couple of games, ooh, they weren't very good. They didn't really touch the ball. They weren't up to much. Now, I'm not saying any of them... Well, um, I would say Campbell's in decent forms. Uh, and in the last game, he did very little, apart from towards the end of the first half. He had that beautiful little ghosting run in from the right. He did a 1-2, put himself into a wonderful position against Southampton, was maybe a bit slow with the cutback, but still got the cutback into Ozil and wasn't perfect, and Ozil couldn't tee it up, could have been a goal. That was one beautiful thing he did. Outside of that, he, Walcott and Ox, whether starting or just getting minutes in the last two, three games, have looked poo on that wing. And I think there's something going on with the team. Uh, the guy, uh, that guy who does the stat stuff, the XG stuff from Holland, Stegen or Turgen or whatever, had, mm-hmm. does these little passing maps, which shows Yeah, you we overloaded left in a big, big way. Massively. And so Tim's point intrigued me because it made me think, uh, you know, maybe it's a deliberate policy, as he's kind of saying, in terms of, you know, going route one with the passing with uh, Ramsey or whoever from midfield. But the other part of it is, abandoning the passing in midfield for a, a party up in the left corner, like we saw very early in the season, but it, even more so, where what we've really settled for is we're moving the midfield over to the left. Poor fucker on the right is cut off. If you look at Ox's goal, uh, it comes from Ramsey coming up the middle and Ox swinging from the middle out to the right. And because nobody's ever out on the right, it ends up being a very spacious, lush, green pasture for them. Uh, but actually, for most of the game, everything happens in that. If if there's going to be passing and triangles, there's going to be Nacho, Alexis, uh, Ozil, um, with Giro with his back to goal, so his left foot kind of naturally plays into th- those three or four players playing uh, triangles. And it's almost like we've abandoned midfield. We've we, we've kind of set camp up in that left corner. That's the new midfield. And when we're not doing that, as Tim says, we're doing the the route one, and, and the goal came from one. The first goal came from that, but it was like the second or third time we did that. And then there was, I think, it was Ramsey knocked that ball over the top to Sanchez, who was called offside but wasn't, and was in fucking acres of space. I'm surprised there wasn't a meltdown at that, but I think we thought he was offside, but he wasn't, as far as I could see. So mm-hmm. it seemed to be the plan in the first half. And continually, and and was the same in the Southampton game. When you looked at the passing maps, it was the same shit. All of the actions in that top left-hand corner, nothing's going on in the right corner. The only thing that ever happens there is Bellerin does an overlapping run. And where in Southampton, he couldn't hit across. This time, he put in a couple of buttes. Yeah, 17 passes at a 64% clip. One dispossessed, one unsuccessful touch, no key passes. He scored a goal, though, so obviously you know, he, he contributed. Yeah. But I, I thought he was most disappointing on the counterattack. I thought when we, when we had counterattacks, we did a very poor job exploiting those opportunities. Um, but, yeah, I thought that, that was a good summary. Is anybody interested, left alive in America, in what I have to say about Olivier Giroud? I thought he had a good game. Elliot? Okay. <laughs> now over to Elliot. Um I think the thing that happens with me with Olivier Giroud is that I have to preface it by saying I don't think Olivier Giroud is bad at football. 
I don't think Olivier Giroud is a, a, a guy that belongs in the championship. I think Olivier Giroud is a guy who can be the second option to rotate in or play as a second striker when we need a goal. I think Olivier Giroud can come in when we need to be more direct, when we need to be more physical, but I don't think he's a guy you want starting every match. I don't think he's a guy who can lead a team to a title. I think teams find him too easy to handle, too easy to control. I think Alexis Sanchez really struggles um, to affect the game the way he wants to when Giroud is in the middle because the way space gets clogged up. I thought Sanchez was poor again in this game, and I, I just don't think they play off each other well. Giroud is now, what is it, five matches without a goal? I believe so, yeah. Right? Um, and here's a classic example of what I, what I deal with when I'm critical of Giroud. About 80 people on Twitter, when I said, you know, I didn't think Giroud had a great game. I thought he was too quiet. You know, he, he's he's just a little too easy right now to defend against. And I just don't like our style, how we play when he's at, at the at the fulcrum, at the, at the tip of the spear. I got 80 people telling me, oh, I guess you didn't see his assist for the goal. Um, you know, because he, you know, all right, he, he gets on the end of a ball and, uh, you know, a long ball over the top and he heads it down and Ozil buries it and... It was intelligent play, though. I mean, I, I get give, it, but, give but, him but that here's my, I get, I'll give him that. But here's the thing, yeah. right? If that's another, you know, if that's Lukaku doing that for Everton and, and, and Everton fans were popping off about Lukaku being world-class, would be like, hooray, your, your big-bodied center forward headed a ball down in the box. Like, he's the new Messi. I get it. It, it was a nice play. He did, a, he did a good, okay? He did a good. But, like, that kind of play, to me, is not indicative of, of how we want to build up our attack, of the team we want to be, of the style we want to play, of the qualities we look for in a striker. Thierry Henry would not have headed that ball down it, to, to Ozil. He wouldn't have, most likely. Okay, Robin Van Persie wouldn't have. Dennis Bergkamp probably wouldn't have. I don't know that Ian Wright would have. But, you know what, they were all much, much better players for that position. Now, I know it's unfair to compare him to that level, but this goes back to my whole sense that we have just lowered our expectations. Olivier Giroud is a perfectly fine player. He can do some really nice things. He has decent technique with his left foot. He's got a big body. He can hold the ball up. Marilyn Schmack scored goals as our striker, okay? Anyone who plays striker for Arsenal is going to score goals. But, like, I, I just think... If we want to be dynamic the way we do, if we want to counterattack at pace the way we want to, if we want to create space and, and platform for our exceptional players like Alexis and Ozil to shine, I just don't think Giroud is the guy we want up front. And I thought this game against Bournemouth was an example. He threw his body around decently well, but he was easy to track. He slowed down our, our counterattacks. He, he, he becomes invisible for long stretches, and people say, oh, well, is Theo Walcott any better? Well, for me, he is better with our style. But then again, no one's saying Theo Walcott is Thierry Henry either. So maybe my problem is the level of expectation of what I want at that position is much higher. But I do think it is the most important position in the in the Premier League. And, and it's an area where I think we, we have a weakness. And, you know, Orbino on Twitter posted the statistics for the goals we've scored at this point through a season. It is the fewest goals Arsenal have scored since I, I think in since 2003 or 2002 at this stage of a season. It's the fewest. And the fewest, for the most part, by 10 or 15 goals. Now, part of that is because we're not getting goals other places. I mean, Giroud has been the one who scored our most goals, but we just, we need, I think, an upgrade there. And and I would love to see Alexis get a chance to play there or behind somewhat. You know, maybe Ozone Alexis can work out some kind of false nine arrangement. I'd rather see Theo if, if you're going to start Alexis on the right, uh, pardon me, on the left. But overall... 
you know, Olivier Giroud can score goals. No one's saying he can't. I just think from a style standpoint and from a max capability standpoint. Like if you said, all right, well, Giroud's scoring more than Alexis, so he's better than Alexis. Well, no, no one thinks that. The maximum ceiling for Alexis's ability is high enough to, to, to take you where you want to go. I just don't think it is for Giroud. And that's not because I think he's bad. That's just because of what I think we need at the position. All right, I let's move on. You. I agree with yep. you more on style than on Did you just ability. say I agree with you, moron? Because I'm... Yes. <laughs> subtle. Well, well played. <laughs> I agree with you, moron. Okay. Tim. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, no. I, I, I definitely agree with you on the style point, and I think it's been very, very evident in Arsene Wenger's behaviour over the years that he's been trying to move away from Giroud. Um, ever since he signed him, really, he's been trying, you know, we had Walcott, don't forget when we signed Alexis. Alexis played up front um, his first couple. The of first games, games. yeah. <laughs> you know he's been trying to move away from him, um, but for some reason, whatever he tries, either doesn't work or we get an injury or something. And at the moment, I I think you're going to have to get used to seeing Giroud up there because Walcott's form is in the toilet, and I think we're going to go back to a stage where Theo Walcott's not really trusted. And have we seen Theo play center forward though since Alexis has been back? Really, I mean, have we seen? No. He, he, we haven't. No, but also I think the main reason we're going to see it a lot is because, um, you know, like we've been saying for the last few weeks, all of our, you know, all of our ball players are, are not available, um, and that means going more direct. And if you're going to go direct, in, in a sense, Walcott is a different type of direct, um, so that doesn't completely. You know, exclude him from the party, but it looks to me like Arsenal made a big decision to go pretty direct and look for the high ball over the defence, look for knockdowns and things like that. Go not quite route one, but not not a million because you know it's not we're not booting it from the centre backs, but that basically we're going to look to get the ball forward as early as possible from the midfield. And if you're going to do that, then you're going to be playing Giroud. So again where it looked like in the autumn we'd kind of found this, well, Walcott, he's not the perfect striker, but he's better for how we want to play. And I agree with that. Um, but the other pieces just aren't there to make the whole thing work. So, again, we're going to come back to this situation, I think, where Giroud's almost like a safety blanket um, that we just keep having, or like a crutch that we just keep having to lean on. And because he's always fit as well, to be fair to him, he's very rarely injured. So he's always kind of there, um, and we know it works to a point. But I agree with you. I, I don't think it's ever what Arsene Wenger wanted. Giroud's debut was on the bench, and Podolski played up front. And I think that tells you about how he saw him when he signed him. It's just we've never quite been able to work it out, largely because we haven't been able to identify this really top-level striker that I think Arsene Wenger still really, really wants. Yeah, uh, look, uh, let, let me say this too. I mean, uh, I get it. He's what we've got. So at some point now you just back him, right? Because what are you going to do? There isn't another striker at the club, and it's the transfer window's closed. Like, there's not a lot of benefit to me harping on about the fact that he's not my cup of tea. He isn't. You know, I mean, if you look at Arsblog, who I think is arguably the most sort of respected, the, the, the you know, sort of the, the guide post for, for, blogging, podcasting, whatever whatever you want to call it, for, for the you know Arsenal um, online community, Theo's not his cup of tea. And he's very vocal about how he feels about Walcott. 
You know, I mean, I, I think sometimes with players, you just feel that way. And, and when it comes to striker, that's really the position that you probably want to like the guy you're playing most of all. Um, so that's fine. I mean, there was one moment, I don't know if you guys noticed, I think it was Alexis played a little through ball, a slipped in ball behind the back four, and Giroud just sort of stopped his run. He was making a little bit of a diagonal across the center backs and just stopped. And Alexis was demonstrably frustrated with him. You know, and Giroud kind of held his hand up, sorry, but it was a good ball. It was a good little slipped-in ball behind the back four, and that's just, that's not where Giroud wants to go. Um, you know, and I think that's part of the problem, because Alexis, I mean, when against Southampton, Alexis played some sensational balls in behind the defense. You know, we think of Ozil doing it, but Alexis is arguably as good or better. And he, if he comes inside and drops a little deeper and he needs someone to make that forward run, Ozil was doing it for him against Southampton, but that's not really where Giroud wants to go. Um... Okay, want to get to a little prognosticating here for a minute because I think there's a genuine question of whether there's a title challenge on, and I think you would both say there is. So here's what I want to say. We have 48 points. There's 39 remaining. Am I correct in my math there? 13 matches is 39 points. Everybody good with that? Okay. I'm going to give you five games, and I want each of you to tell me the points you not hope but believe we will take from those five games. Okay? So I'll start with you, Paul. And just think about it and tally up in your head what you think. It's 15 points to, uh, up for grabs in these five. So, Paul, these games are United away, Spurs away, City away, Everton away, West Ham away. You want to go through them one at a time real quick? United away. Points? One. Okay. City away. And these are not one. in the order that we play them. One. Okay. Uh, West Ham away. Three. Everton away? <laughs> I'm going to be conservative. One. White Hart Lane? One. Okay. Your turn, Tim. Uh, let's go with United away. Three. All right. Off to a flying start. I'll do this. Try to do this a little more in order then. So, uh, White Hart Lane. One. All right. No losses in this stretch, huh? Everton away? I would say three, but it's straight off the Barcelona away, so one. Okay. That's good knowledge of the fixtures. That's why we have you on here. Um, West Ham away? Three. That's that's a tough place. We know that, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Um, and then uh, City away? None. Okay. So we'll start with you, Paul. You've given us seven points, okay? So if I add that to the 48 that we have, that's 55. There are 24 points after that remaining. That would give us a max of 79 points if we won every single point out there, including Leicester at the weekend. Cool. Okay, 79 max. You gave us eight, so it'd be 80 max. I would say both of you went with fairly realistic totals for those matches. You see where I'm driving at here, though. If we get the point totals you say in those hard fixtures, our max points is 79 or 80. Now, we're not going to take max points from from the eight. We're not going to win all eight. What do you think it's going to take to win the league? If you had to guess right now, Paul, what, what do you think the point total to win the league is going to need to be? Uh, 76. 76? All right, what about you, Tim? Yeah, I, th- I think 77, 78, something like that. 
let's say let's say it's seventy seven, and let's agree that we are not going to overhaul Spurs or City's goal difference. Can we agree on that? Mm-hmm. So if it's seventy seven, based on the returns you guys gave us in the hard matches, um, Paul, that means we can drop two points from the other twenty four, and Tim, we can drop three. Mm-hmm. Given that analysis. How scary is this starting to look? Tim, I'll start with you. <laughs> yeah, a bit. Um, I, I think for us, the real key is we've got, I think we've got seven home games and six away games left. And those seven home games actually, on paper, look fairly kind. Um, uh, I don't think that. Leicester's, other than Leicester. Other, right? other than Leicester, yeah. Okay. Um, after that, you're looking at guys like, you know, teams like West Brom, who probably won't be in trouble and at the same time aren't really going for anything else. We'll have Villa on the last day, who I kind of hope will already be gone um, for our purposes, not out of any kind of ambivalence towards Aston Villa. Um, you know, so really it's, it's only, I think we've got Sunderland in April. And other than that, you know, we, we've got the sort of teams you'd want towards the end of the season. Um, and, and I mean, you look at last season, for example, we had Sunderland at home right at the end. Terrible time to play them because they were scrapping for their life points. Absolutely dreadful time to play them. Um, but, you know, the others, they're, they're fairly kind. I think we're going to have to get pretty close to maximum points at home. Maybe, you know, as you've just illustrated, one draw in there. But basically, there isn't a lot of room for, um, you know, unwanted surprises, shall we say. So, yeah, of course it's scary, but going for the league is scary um, because you're going for the league, you're by definition looking to set the absolute ceiling for every team in England. And of course that's scary, you know, that's like that's that's climbing to the top of the mountain. Um, you know, that no, nobody wins the league easily or without some travails or without, you know, a superhuman effort and that's just what it requires that's always what it required from day number one so I don't think it's something to be unduly um, scared by I'd, I'd say for the players I'd say take that as a challenge because that's where you want to be dealing um, that's where you want to be dealing now with this club regularly and for the fans I'd just say just try and enjoy it because um, you know that's that's what we all wanted right how many how many times did we hear, have we heard the words over the years, I just want us to challenge? Um, yep. Well, you know, here it is. It is a bit scary, but, you know, fuck it. It's only football. Enjoy it. <laughs> it's, going to be, it's going to be as exciting as fuck, though. I mean, yeah. Uh, I get well, wait, 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 I, wait, I, wait. I get what wait, you're saying. Hang wait. on, Elliot. We, I hope get what... it, we hope it is. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, but, it but could still are, go the other way. <laughs> there are four teams on basically on near equal points. Uh, let's let's make a little assumption, a really dangerous assumption. But let's say we get the result we need against Leicester next week. Sure, why not? Why not? Um, I mean, it's just a fucking delicious... You know, I mean, we're all acting like it's the end of the world if we don't win the league. Now, it will be the end of the world for us. But we'll, you know, we'll get to that point. It'll be an awful summer. The fucking... Uh, antagonism among the supporters, blah, blah, blah. But in the meantime, there's a fucking cracking league going on. Mm. An incredible battle. And if we win it, 
you know, screw all that shit at the start of the year about it's, well, maybe halfway through the, the season about it. You know, if you win this, there's nothing to brag about. This is going to be fucking awesome, whichever team takes it. If we win it, and I think you're right in your analysis, Elliot, it'll be because we went on a fucking hot run yeah. and, and blazed our way through it. The nice thing is we can't calculate our way to winning the league, and neither can the team. It's... It, the, the team that wins this, it's beyond maths. It's the team that gets their shit together, goes on a run, and earns it. It could be four teams slugging it out and the least bad team that falls over the line. Or maybe Leicester will just be untouchable and they'll go all the way because we got a draw at the Emirates and they did everything they needed everywhere else. Those are other possible scenarios. But I think the most likely one is one team, Leicester or somebody else, gets their shit together and goes on a hell of a run, and that should be us. So I guess we'll find out. Let's hope so. I I mean, what you've just both outlined based on your predictions for those five quote-unquote hard fixtures is that we need to go no worse than seven wins and a draw from the other eight. That would be a hell of a run, and it's probably right. It's probably what we'll need. So it shows you the kind of form we're going to have to hit. But also, to be fair, Elliot, I mean Mm – we gave you realistic scenarios for yeah, we could win every the one five of those games. games. Well, you know, for the couple of other points you lose somewhere else, maybe instead of drawing with Everton, we be, you know, if we're going to win the league, guess what? We're probably going to have to beat Everton. And if we don't beat Everton in, in Tim's scenario, we'll have to beat City. And if we don't, be, you know, we're going to have to do something beyond the norm rather than what do we think we should get. If we get what we think we should get, we're in trouble. But, but do you hear One what you're saying? One of these teams is going to step I, I just up. want to harken back to something really quickly. What you were saying is absolutely right. And it is why I was on this podcast, and, and, and you guys agreed to some extent, but saying the Stoke draw isn't a good point. The Anfield draw isn't a good point. Yeah, because I know, but, but... You have but, to convert these into... But theory. can't we worry about that more a little later on? Right now, can't we yeah, get but, on but, with enjoying but, the fucking you, game and the league? And it doesn't have... We're, we're having a um, post-mortem every fucking week. But we I all just, know the situation. This I'm just is, curious about one thing. Yeah. When do I get to say I told you so? That's the key. At the That's end of the season. And I really until hope then, not. you, you got to hold it in. You, <laughs> no, Paul, you just I get gotta. it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding around. I, I, honestly, all I want in the world is a title. It's all I want. So, I mean, this comes from a good place. I want us to do it. I want to I be able to come up with a calculation in my head today that tells me we're going to be standing there hoisting the trophy in May. Of sure, course I, we all want that. I, I really do get that. I really want to win the league, too. Uh, the team wants to win it a hell of a lot more than I do. But I don't know. I don't know that I buy that. I don't know that I buy that. All right. But anyway, I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying they're well paid. Yeah, yeah. No, no. In the meantime, Elliot, um, I want to enjoy the fucking league and the games along the way. I'm not going to fucking sweat every single thing to see if it proves to me we're not going to win the league because I need to know we're not going to win the league. It doesn't matter. Enjoy it. Yeah, you should enjoy it. And, and so that brings me to my next question is how, how much should we be enjoying this? And I, I think we should, but I think part of the problem, part of the thing preventing me from enjoying it more is just that I'm not watching great Arsenal football on the way to a title challenge. I feel like I'm watching 
really passable slash mediocre football. So I'll start with you, Tim. Let's use the eye test. I get that we're in a title challenge. I get that. We're definitely in a title challenge, but we are potentially on pace to 76, 77 points. We've done that before in seasons where we certainly didn't have our pulse racing like it is now. And I think everything Paul said is entirely right. We need to enjoy it. But part of enjoying it is is watching great football. So does the football you're seeing this season, with a few exceptions aside, I mean, you put the city and the United games aside and you look at you know, losing those Champions League games early in the season and starting with the loss home to West Ham and, and not beating Spurs at home and losing to Chelsea and losing to Chelsea again and the run we went on in November and the run we went on in January. Is this season passing the eye test for you? I, all right, I'm not debating that we're in a title race, and I get it. There's no asterisk that goes next to a title challenge or a title win. If we win the title, we're asterisk. champions of England. Asterisk. Six. Asterisk. Asterisk. Close enough. Next to your, your, your title. And we'll all celebrate like madmen, of course. But from an eye test standpoint, is this, is this season passing the eye test? Does it feel better watching it than any of the previous seasons? Um, I, I think it, it's been a bit of a weird season in that we have had, we've had a lot of pretty bad performances. We've had a lot of really good ones as well. You know, you think of Munich, Manchester United, Manchester City. You know, really, really good performances. I think we were playing really, really good football and passing, you know, the eye test probably around about late September, October, that kind of early autumn period where Walcott started to play up front. We had our first choice midfield. And, you know, we basically had what I think Arsene Wenger considers to be his preferred 11 available for a run of games. And, and that's when I thought, you know, we were really passing the eye test. Um, whether we, we're certainly not at the moment um, and haven't done, you know, probably since the end of November because we've had the heart ripped out of our team through injury. But the kind of my point would be, I think when you win the league, there is an awful and, and very, very understandable it is, there is an awful lot of um, revisionism, romanticism, that goes on about what actually happens in a league-winning season. I think it's Bertie Mee said after the 70-71 double season, I can't remember the exact quote, so I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, any football team is pretty much only capable of playing to its best six or seven times a season. Huh. Um, he said, like, you will only get even a, cha- a championship-winning team probably six or seven times in a season will say, we were brilliant. We were absolutely on it 100% today. So he, so his argument was that's a very small portion of the season. So actually the rest of it is made up with gritting it out, with perhaps drawing when you should have lost and, you know, winning when you should have drawn and things like that. And that, that happened in 2001, 2002. Um, in that little kind of that 10 match run towards the title, there were some really good performances in there. There were some shit that was hard to watch. I remember us winning at Goodison Park 1-0 with one of my favourite goals of all time by Sylvain Wiltord, which he completely missed it, a volley that looped in. The horrible pitch, really, really bumpy, muddy. Matthew Upson broke his leg in the first 20 minutes. It was, it was a terrible game to watch. In that 10-match run in 2001-2002, People have erased this from their memories. Igor Stepanov's played five of those games. Igor Stepanov's started five of those ten games. And we gritted it out. 
And of course, because in hindsight we won it, and you know we did have some. Don't get me wrong, we had some fabulous footballers and some fabulous performances. But people remember now that that happened every week, and it didn't. And actually, in the stage of the season where it really came to brass tacks and we were the most effective, we were we weren't brilliant to watch um, in that period. And you know, in two thousand three four, we drew twelve games, and I think about six of them we made a decision to draw. Um, in that there was 20 minutes to go and we'd shut the game down, um, particularly away from home. I remember away at Bolton, away at Everton, we conceded equalisers. They got on top of us and we went, right, we're shutting this down, we're going 4-5-1, we're taking the point. That happened a lot, but obviously, again, people don't remember that. They just remember us ripping teams apart every week. And it doesn't happen, it doesn't. And, you know, I think that, Arsenal now are going to do what they did at the end of last season, where they had a lot of injuries, they stumbled on something that worked, and they just stayed with it to get themselves over the line. I think you're going to see that again this season. I think that's why you're seeing Francis Coquelin held back a bit. I think that's why you're seeing, you've seen Alexis Sanchez held back a bit. The reason he's holding them back is because once they're back in, that's it. They're back in, and they're not getting rotated again until the end of the season. Uh presuming they don't break before then. I think that's why he's been a little bit discerning because Wenger is not usually discerning about throwing players back in after injury. I think it's because he knows this is the home straight now and I think you're going to see Arsenal going more direct. They'll sacrifice good football. Um, this is why I don't think Theo Walcott's going to get many more minutes this season because I, he hasn't got the time to try and make that work. I think he's just going to go for results and it's not uncom un uncommon at all. Um, we've seen it time and time again when Arsenal are chasing the title, when Arsenal are chasing fourth. They go back to something that works that's fairly unremarkable to watch. Um, and, you know, if we win the league this season, nobody will be saying this time next year, oh, but, what, you know, was, wasn't that performance a bit bitty and, you know, People will remember in 10 years, if this team wins the league, that they, that they were brilliant and amazing and that all the players in the squad were exceptional and faultless because that's what happens when you win the league. Um, so has it passed the eye test? Probably not, but it's not as far away from some of our other title-winning seasons as many people would have you believe. Yeah, I'm going to let Paul build on that, but I'll make a point because you just said something that, that struck a chord for me, Tim, which is that if we do win the league, It'll probably be because we beat Leicester next weekend and we go and win at Old Trafford and we go and win at City in late April, early May, whenever, I guess early May maybe. Mm. Um, and if those results do go our way, that will become the story of the season, that we won at Old Trafford and, and at the Emirates against United and that we beat City twice and that we beat the then you know, real contenders to the title, Leicester twice, right? So it's possible that the legacy of this title season, if it becomes a title season, is yet to be written. Going to White Hart Lane and winning, going to the Etihad and winning, going to Old Trafford and winning. You do that, and it's not just going to pass the eye test. It's going to be well-remembered because there are big wins along the way, and vice versa. If we fail to win at White Hart Lane and fail to win at Old Trafford and fail to win at the Etihad and don't beat Leicester next weekend, it's not going to be a title season. So... I think your point is a good one. Um, and, and before I turn it over to you, Paul, I'll just make this point really quickly too. It's so hard for me to analyze this season and, and to keep my emotions in check in this one respect. 
every single thing I think about Arsenal right now is viewed through the lens of this stretch where we've had to play Ramsey and Flamini in midfield. There's been no Cochrane. There's been no Alexis. There's you know been a lot of difficulty putting a group of 11 players on the pitch together that are capable of playing the way we want to. And I fully acknowledge now that Alexis is back and, and, and hopefully finding some form and Cochrane looks like he's going to be back and ready to start games again. We may start to look more like the team that thrashed United than the team that's been stuttering along the way. So what about you, Paul, from an eye test standpoint, when you watch this Arsenal team, are you getting that, 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 that thrill from it that, that you would expect to get in a title season? No, uh, I agree fully with what Tim said. I think when we had our midfield, when we had Santi and Cochrane, we played some delicious football at times, and since then we haven't. I mean, there are things to enjoy and, and savor moments, but not particularly games. Um, but I do think this season, kind of Tim talked about it, this se- season's about the drama. It's like watching your favorite uh, soap. You're watching Car- uh, Coronation Street, and Kevin's cheating behind Sally's back with Molly. And the acting isn't very good, but nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to notice that Molly has a massive forehead. They all think she's attractive, and that's why Kevin's interested in her. But she has a massive forehead. So that's what I think this season is. I think it's all about the drama. Don't worry quite... You know, it'll be wonderful if there's great football, but as this goes along, we really won't fucking care. No more than... Kevin, Sally, or Molly were ever going to get an Oscar for that particular series of episodes. I mean, that that says it so much better, Paul, than Tim or I possibly could have. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't know so. why. That, I, it, that's why I sent you that little message on Skype saying, "Could I add in after Tim?" Because I thought I could really add something here. She has a giant forehead. Has to be the Molly. title of this. Molly has a giant forehead. Has to be yeah. the title of this this episode. Um, Tim, and look, Tim, isn't Molly's I am, forehead massive? Yeah, isn't it? it uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so what you're saying is, if this season is a massive forehead, it's like. It's like Javinio, basically. It's it's the Javinio season. <laughs> I'll no, take that's, that. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying <laughs> Molly could have headed that ball down for Ozil into the box. Okay, look, but she wasn't um, even on the bench. What? If I had a gavel, I'd be banging it right now. <laughs> um, look, I, you know, and this is the reality. We each bring our own pers- personality to the way we support our, our football team, and for me. I have a good life. I'm a very happy person, and in my day, I'm a very upbeat, you know, convivial guy. What I do is I take all the frustration and sadness and regret and, and anger and you. worry, and I, I channel it into my support for, for, for my football team. And so when, when they drive me crazy, because you know what? I'm not going to yell at my wife or my, my five-month-old baby or my business partners or my friends, even if they deserve it. I'm going to yell on Twitter because it's just... You know, it's it's harmless. So don't take me so seriously if there's anyone out there that does. But, like, yeah, this, Elliot, this is Elliot, stressful stuff. I want stuff. you to know, and, and Tim and I have talked about this, James, has ta- Linus, and, in fact, all the people on Twitter have 
have we've all got together and talked about this. We all fully believe that your sweetness, light, and optimism personified every time you're not on the pod or on Twitter. <laughs> it's true. It's a hundred thousand percent true. We believe man. it. Okay. You, you needn't explain. We believe you, Elliot. You're sweet. You're sweet for saying that. And look, I recently had my appendix out. It was this big gaseous poison ball in my body. Maybe that was the problem. Um, okay. So I, I want to wrap up. I think you're getting yourself confused with Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, no. Uh, he did it because I did it. I was, I'm a trendsetter. Um, so, I'm you know, and, and, and by like... the way, it, it, I want us to win the title, too, so we can laugh at Chelsea more and all those other cunts. And just so come on, Arsenal. Um, all right, Tim, I want to finish off with this. Um, and, Paul, you'll forgive me if I don't ask you about this just because you and I live in the United States, and so it's less of an issue. Just a real quick question on ticket prices. The ticket price thing is, is obviously big news right now. There's a backlash. We had the surcharge issue at Arsenal. I don't want to get too deep into it, but let me ask you this, okay? If you went around to all the season ticket holders and you said, all right, we're going to cut your season ticket price in half, but as a result of doing that, we're going to say, I don't know, take $20 million a season off of, and I know these numbers don't necessarily work out. I'm, I'm asking you this question for a reason. You can take $20 million out of our potential transfer spending war, war chest, do you think the season ticket holders would – which is more important? Do they, do they want the team to spend the money on, on the playing staff or would they just rather have the money back in their pockets and be fine going and rooting for this team and cheering on the team with cheaper players if it meant cheaper tickets? No, I, I think the vast majority of season ticket holders would want, um, you know, would want the money invested in the team um, – I think generally speaking, you know, we've got 41,000 season ticket holders. Um, although the waiting list numbers are massaged a little bit, because if you give up your season ticket, you're automatically put on the waiting list, whether you like it or not. So some of those numbers are massaged and lots of people put themselves on and actually never really have any intention of taking one. They just want to say they're on the waiting list. And loads of people get passed over on the waiting list because... If you're called, you get like a week to stump up the money, and most people can't do that. But leaving all of that aside, most people, I think, you know, there's enough people that either pay it or are willing to pay it. Um, and they might not be entirely happy with every single penny they're paying, but they do it. Um, so there's, you know, there's at least some value in it, even if the concept of value is warped by the emotional attachment. The vast majority of season ticket holders would want, you know, would want um, would want the money to be reinvested in the squad and would want the squad to be as good as possible. Personally, I don't really care um, because I say I don't care. That's not that's not what I mean. I mean, um, for me, it's all about like the social aspect. I've been going since I was eight years old. Um, I've never not gone, um, so it's it's something separate um, to me. Um, that said, I think nobody's asking for free tickets. Nobody's asking. Nobody's even really saying, you know, really slash them or slash them in half. I think football fans have been incredibly understanding about why they're getting charged, the prices they're getting charged. When Arsenal moved to the Emirates, my season ticket went up 120% in five years. I understood that. I perfectly understood that. They were putting together a 400 million stadium. They were begging and borrowing from the banks and things like that. And there was a tangible product and reason for that. And it was something that most people really wanted, that new stadium. 
Um, so you know things like that are quite understandable. It's understandable. That you need to. Con- I think I think most people are familiar with the economics of it and are largely speaking okay with it. Um, nobody likes being charged. You know, if everyone would love to be charged less if they could, but I think football fans are very very understanding. I think we've reached a breaking point now because of the television money, and actually, you know, the the economics. Um, are becoming a bit clearer now and you know price rises with the tv money that comes in that's coming in at the moment it, there is no other explanation other than greed and there's a reason that arsenal have stopped doing as many supporters clubs meetings as they used to do They've, you know the, the dialogue that they have with supporters it's not non-existent and they are much better than most clubs in their position but they've dialed it right down and it's because they know, they know full well, they haven't got any more spin to offer on this subject. And I think you're seeing a breaking point now. Um, and I hugely applaud those Liverpool fans um, who did the walkout on Saturday. Um, for the, it, It's a token gesture, but for the first five minutes on Sunday, I'm watching in the concourse um, in solidarity with Leicester fans who've arranged a protest because the game on Sunday was changed at the last minute. And that's a real bugbear and inconvenience to me very constantly and other people I go with. So, you know, we're going to watch the first five minutes in the concourse on Sunday to make the point, here's the stadium half empty and here's the stadium full. Um, which one do you prefer as your television product? Um, and I think football fans are being quite smart about that. They understand where their power is and our power now whether you know we morally agree with it or not, is as part of the television product, um, and that's why you're seeing things like walkouts and you know abstaining. And I think eventually, hopefully, what Liverpool fans have started is just the first kind of brick in the wall, and we'll get somewhere towards you know boycotts or something much more organised between fans of all clubs. Um, I think that's where we're this is driving and where it should drive and Liverpool have struck the first blow um, and I think it's up to everybody else to catch them up because we've been incredibly understanding been incredibly understanding about Sky showing games on Sundays and changing games you know we as, as fans as stadium going fans have made an awful lot of concessions over the last 10 years and I think we've been incredibly understanding about it um, you know, like Bournemouth on Sunday, I hate it when away games are moved to a Sunday. It's not nearly as fun as going on a Saturday, but that's just me and that's my little foible and I'm, you know, a needle in a haystack here. Uh, so I don't complain about that too much. Um, we've, we've been pushed back and pushed back and we've accepted and accepted. And I think it's come to a point now where um, you can't really push us anymore without expecting a reaction. And I think you're going to see a lot more of this sort of thing over the next kind of months and couple of years um, unless concessions are made. Um, And that's why away ticketing is, we're seeing a lot on away ticketing. It's a battle that can be won because numbers of away fans are dropping all over the country. If you're talking about selling the game as a television product with the atmosphere and the noise and the colour, it all comes from away fans. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, bodies like the Football Supporters Federation have been incredibly smart at boxing, very clever. Um, but I think 
it comes to a point where you keep stirring the hornet's nest and you're going to get a reaction. And I don't think football, Premier League football clubs have got much more wiggle room there before they get some kickback. Yeah, I think that's well said and it's an interesting insight. And I think, you know, I'm not one of these people who thinks, obviously, because I'm American, but one of these people thinks, oh, the foreign fans aren't as important as the domestic fans. I think every fan of the club is important. But when it comes to ticket price issues, if you don't pay for a ticket, I don't, I don't think it's right to, to involve yourself in the debate because at the end of the day, it's one thing for us to debate the club and the players and the manager. We all have a right and an interest to do that. Um, when someone has to reach into their pocket and spend their hard-earned money on something and you don't, um, I, I just I, I hate seeing people who don't make that sacrifice tell people who do how they should feel about it. So, you know, I certainly appreciate your insight on that. And, Paul, unless you have anything to add, I think we can wrap up there. I don't. I agree with that. I think you got to back – the, the fans that go to the game, uh, you're not in their shoes, but absolutely give them the benefit of the doubt that if you're in their situation, you're feeling their pain. So 100% yep. behind them. Yep, me too. Okay, let's leave it there. Um, I thought maybe we could go into the, the lineups for the Leicester game, but we're already over an hour. And honestly, I think a lot of it's going to be about whether, you know, look, if Coughlin is fit enough to play, he'll start. Um, there'll be a few interesting choices up front, but it's a big, big, big game. Big big game it's a must win big super game it's it's being played in the bowl of a stadium that is the emirates you might call it a super bowl um i don't know anyway uh it's gonna be great and i'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to discussing it with you and james james it sounds like he's gonna be on after that so let's hope it's a win so he and i don't have to tear each other limb from limb as always you should be following paul on twitter he is pausing in my pants paul i really do uh enjoy speaking to you about the arsenal thanks for for Likewise, speaking with elias yeah. Thank you. And uh, Tim, whose insight is uh, not only really welcome, but but also a nice break from having to talk to Paul. Um, Tim can be found on Twitter. That's still Birdo. I kid, of course, yeah, because shit. I love uh, Tim. Thanks. Uh, my pleasure, as always. Yeah. And uh, my name's Elliot. Block me on Twitter. Yankee Gunner. Anyway, on. we'll talk to you after Lester. Title bit is on. Let's go. Rah, rah. Arsenal. Woo. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.